Good morning. Welcome to the uh, alumni panel, Child Welfare Alumni Panel. We have the amazing opportunity this morning to hear from adults who experienced the child welfare system as children. I'm excited to introduce the panel here briefly, and then we'll start by having each one of you tell us a little bit about your story and your journey, and then it will be open for questions. And I'm really excited. I appreciate all of you, and I appreciate you having some grace with us as we may stumble upon questions we're not sure how to ask. So thank you for very, very much for being here. First on the panel is Commissioner Chaz Tedesco. He's an Adams County Commissioner. I wanna congratulate Chaz on his recent reelection to the Commissioner's Board, so congratulations. Um, Tori Schuler is the Executive Director of the Colorado branch of Fostering Great Ideas and a good friend of mine. Lindsay Mathias, you all know and love from Team Foster Source. She is our program manager. She was one of my interns last year, and then I just couldn't live without her. So we hired her to the team. And Cassandra Harris is a longtime friend and presenter of ours. Um, she's an author and a child welfare advocate. We are thrilled to have all of you. Um, why don't we start? Commissioner, would you like to start and tell us a little bit about your story? Welcome, everyone. Well, thank you very much, Renee. And I got to say that, you know, I've known you for a very long time. And she was also a recipient at one of our Foster Awards dinners, her and Brian. And, and it's just been an amazing journey to kind of travel with her while she was a foster parent and, and along her journey into Foster Source. And thank you. I think that, you know, she's making so many inroads and with the, especially with the counties, but again, there's 64 counties. So right? we're, we're just starting. <laughs> we, need, we need everybody to get out there and really bug their county and say, what the heck, you know, why can't Let's we do, do it? That? Absolutely. <laughs> so um, my name is Chaz Tedesco. Uh, I am a former foster child or always a foster child and an adoptive child. Um, I, I was born in Denver General. Uh, I was given up for adoption, at least per the people that adopted me said that I was given up at birth. Um, I have a change in my story. I actually found my uh, both my biological father and my biological mother. Um, it's been interesting, let's just say that. Um, I think everybody expects to find answers um, when they find their parents. The unfortunate part about it is, is my found out that my father was a army um, veteran, uh, was suffering and became a vagrant and died on a train in uh, um, um, Utah in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. And, you know, so he died about the time I went into the military. And I found my mother, and it's been very um, taxing um, and emotional and trying and um, to try to get information and get through some of the things that she's been saying and some of the things she gives me as information and trying to verify what is true, what isn't true. Um, so, you know, being a, I, I bring that up because being a foster child is not a time and a place. Being a foster child is your entire life. Um, it's, it's trying to figure out who you are, where you belong, um, and, and all the things that come with that. And, you know, I, I try to tell people from the very beginning that 
you know, being a foster parent is like being an angel and you really are the protector of that child. But you also need to understand you, you can't be everything to that child. Um, we all have different stories. We all have different backgrounds. We've all come through the foster care system, but in different ways. And not one story will match another's story. And what I try to tell people is that when we're kids or we're young, the American dream is you will always have your parents. You will always, no matter what, your parents will be there for you and with you. And in the foster care system, that is not always the case. And we learn when we're very young that all of that can be ripped away from you in a moment's notice with no explanation, with no background, with no understanding. What we know as kids is that we have parents and that those parents love us. And that's all we care. We don't care about the abuse. We don't care about the alcoholism. We don't care about anything else. Those may be factors, but what we know is, is that we have those parents and they love us and they care for us. They may have bad tendencies, but we're kids. We want our parents to love us. We live for those moments when they hold us, when they kiss us, when they tell us they love us. We live for those moments. Everything else is part of life. But when you find out that what you're being taught or told isn't the case, it becomes very difficult to trust and to expose your emotions to others. So foster parents, if you're out there and you're trying to figure out why, if I'm giving these kids everything and all the love and everything we have, why aren't they reciprocating? You're angels for, for, for wondering that, but I will tell you that it, it, it's not something that is um, just given because there's a factor of, I don't wanna, from, the, from a child's point of view, or at least from mine, I don't wanna give my heart and my soul to somebody again and have it ripped from me again. So that's kind of where I come from. Um, and like I said, it's it's not a one-time place, time and place. It's it's an entire lifetime to, to travel through. And I'm experiencing that now at 55 years old and all the emotions and all the angst and everything else that comes along with it is just, just as raw as it probably was when I was little. So I just want to again say, you guys are all angels and I wish you the best. And I hope that, you know, things like this give you the resources and the training and the knowledge that you need to be the foster parents that you can and will be. So thank you. Awesome. Now you were in care until about five, is that right? And then you were adopted by your foster family? No, I was adopted outside of the foster family. So I have a sister that was put up for adoption with me. She's a year older than me. And we were separated when we were put into foster care. And so when we were adopted, they adopted us both as siblings. Um, we came to find out that we are half siblings. Um, we both have different fathers, but the same mother. And that's where I'm saying the, the whole stories get kind of mixed up through there. <laughs> so it's, okay. it's created a lot of issues with my sister and I because she's not very acceptant, uh, acceptant of the fact that we are half siblings and not full-blooded siblings like she had thought. Okay. And I think one thing you said was for me a big aha, especially when I was a brand new foster parent, because I thought, 
what child wouldn't love to come into this nice home and it's warm and we have nice meals and we have plenty of toys and exactly what you said is is actually the case the child would rather be with bio mom and dad and we've we've heard that we heard that from our sweet Aerith who who talks for us sometimes saying she didn't know that what was going on was abuse and neglect she just wanted to be with her parents Right. So I think for me, that was a big aha as a foster parent. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. Um, Lindsay, do you want to go next? Sure. Um, my story is very different, um, which is going to be the case for all of us, I think. Um, I went into care when I, like a week before my 15th birthday. Um, my dad had raised me. And then at 14, I was taken from my dad and placed with my mom. Um, my dad was extremely abusive. I went to my mom and suddenly my mom and stepdad had to figure out how to have two teenage girls in their home. They'd never raised teenage girls. Um, and I tell this story because I don't want to villainize my mother. Um, as an adult now, I can look back and really have an understanding of what happened. Um, and I needed to talk about what I had been through with my dad and my mother could not do it because it was making her relive her marriage with my dad. Um, and so she kind of put on her blinders, she drank and I had complete freedom. And when I went to her and told her that I was getting myself into trouble with the wrong friends and drugs and everything, her solution was to kick me out. That was the only way she knew to deal with it. Um, and that's when I went into care. And I was in care until I was 17 and a half, almost 18 years old. Um, so I bring that perspective of being a teenager and going through it, having love for my mother, but being angry um, and eventually reunifying. Um, and not necessarily because it was the right thing. Um, my caseworker came to me and she was like, I think we're going to put you up for adoption. And I was like, are you stupid? I'm 17 and a half. Nobody wants me. I am angry. I am bitter. No, I was like, just send me home or emancipate me. And so we worked to send me back to my mother's. Um, happy to say my mother and I ended up having an amazing relationship until I lost her. Um, but I am very careful to not villainize my mom in my story. Yeah. Thank you, Lindsay. I know you have more stories to tell us later. <laughs> thank you for, thank you for starting off. I forgot to tell everyone to bring tissues. It's a very vulnerable, <laughs> vulnerable panel. Um, and we're so grateful to all of you. Tori, would you like to go next? Sure. <clears throat> Hi, everybody. I'm Tori. And um, I just want to say, I think it's amazing everything that Foster Source is offering to foster parents and to see how much you guys are growing. Um, and I love the training about holiday sensitivity. I just did a training with our staff yesterday, like explaining the complicated emotions that children feel. Um, and it's like Chaz said, you know, it's, I always say foster care is bittersweet and it really doesn't matter how much sweet we add to the equation, the bitter will always be there. And um, so I love that you guys are really looking at how we can be more responsive to our young people in foster care. 
Um, so my name is Tori Schuler, and I'm the director here in Colorado for Fostering Great Ideas. And um, I'll do a selfish plug real quick because I want to help you foster parents. I can do virtual sibling visits and uh, virtual tutoring for any kids anywhere in Colorado right now. And we have tutors that are volunteers that are waiting to go. So I know I'm struggling with online school and um, I'm hoping that we can uh, support some more foster parents. Wow. At some point during today, Tori, can you put that link in the chat? Yeah, definitely. Because that um, is so needed. Yeah, and the, the tutors are really excited to get going. So um, everybody, I know I, I, I need it for me and my kids unfortunately can't use the resource, but so I know foster parents can use it, especially when we're fostering a lot of different kids that are in school. Um, so my story is, you know, everybody's story is different. Um, my parents um, always have struggled with um, drugs and um, really have never stood on their two feet. And um, when I was a, a baby, I had an older brother and sister who are my half siblings. We all have the same mom. And my parents had three kids together and um, we're all like Irish tri triplets, basically like right back to back to back. And when the youngest one was um, nine weeks old, we were put in foster care for some pretty serious um, abuse and neglect. And um, when that happened, my mom just, she just left. And so I never saw her again until I was basically an adult. And um, we went to what I call an orphanage and um, we lived there for almost a year. And then we went to live with my grandmother, who's actually my great grandmother's. Um, yes, I'm willing to offer that to the bios in the foster home as well. Um, any, that was in the chat, sorry guys. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so we went to live with my great grandmother and I lived with her until she passed away a couple years later. And then I think at that point, um, I'm not really sure because I haven't read all of the legal documents from that part of my file. It's kind of hard to get stuff from different states, but um, I'm pretty sure that they did an APR to her. And then when she died, my dad still had his parental rights. And so I don't really understand how the transition worked, but when she died, I lived with my dad again. And then we basically spent the next 10 years running away from foster care. And um, Barry, my dad always struggles with drugs. He also um, has very significant mental health concerns. And so the three of us um, and him were kind of this like um, lonely tribe where we would hop all over the west side of the country anytime the foster care people left their cards on our door, we would just up and leave. So. Um, I've been to like 37 schools and I've moved more times than I could possibly count, been homeless a lot, um, and really struggled with all the different insecurities, food insecurity, all the time, clothing insecurity. Um, but it's kind of like Lindsay was saying, you don't really know that that's going on um, when that's your norm. And, and, you know, we still really loved our parent and having been in foster care and knowing that because of that experience, I never saw my brother and sister who are older. Um, I was a vigilant that we were not going to be put back in foster care. So we knew the story down pat, like every bruise had an explanation before you could even see it. And, um, you know, anytime that it was seeming like we were going to be investigated or go back into care, we just skipped town. And then that gave us, you know, weeks or months until the next community got wind of what was going on. So when I was 15, we kind of, or I'm sorry, 16, we kind of couldn't run anymore. And 
Um, my dad, uh, we were homeless and my dad, um, tried to run my sisters down in a park in his car and the police intervened. And I had no idea that any of this had happened. So my sisters were in foster care for two days before I was in foster care. Um, and I lived with my dad in the car. And then when I went to school, they pulled me out and put me in care um, with my sisters and my foster family, who's my, my just regular family now, I'm not adopted, but um, I'm basically adopted, I guess. My foster family was um, my younger sister's best friend's parents. And so they took all of us in. I lived on a couch for a little while while they scrambled. I know um, some of you foster parents have probably been there too. And um, they became foster parents to take care of us. And that's who my forever family is. My sisters, unfortunately, um, really struggled with the stability and the structure and um, went on to many, many other foster homes. But that's where I stayed. And that's kind of... Um, the blessing in my life is that I had this opportunity, this watershed moment, and my life went in a completely different direction. So um, since then, I emancipated, I went to college, I um, work for this nonprofit, because my mission is to make foster care better um, for the kids that are in it. Thank you, Tori. Thank you. So happy to have you on the panel. Cassandra, would you please share? Hello, everyone. Um, I do want to start off by saying thank you to Renee and Foster Source for um, giving us this opportunity. Um, I often have found that the foster use representation is lower <laughs> than I'd like to see. So it's nice to see us be included in the conversations about us. Um, I am from California, so I was in foster care in California. Um, my mother suffers from some serious mental health issues um, and did not receive treatment or any type of medication or anything until I was 17. So childhood was, you know, as a child, I thought, okay, maybe, maybe she's on drugs, but um, I, I'm thankful that she wasn't. Um, it was more so the mental illness that was causing the irrational decisions. Um, my father uh, is the original reason why I was placed into care. Um, so when I was five, he came back from Korea. He was in the army um, and came back and he just wasn't the same person and started to abuse me immediately. I have a sister that's two years younger than me. Um, and there's no he told on himself. So he said like, okay, I abused her, but he has not said anything about my sister. So as of now, it's just me. Um, so when I was about six, I was taken from school. Um, I was underweight, um, did not speak much. And they kind of picked up on something going on in the home. And so when they started to investigate, he just, he was like, yeah. And my mother, the same. Um, so they took us to our first group home. And during the intake process there, I was raped by the group home staff. And um, they, my mother actually found out this was before the stricter um, confidentiality laws. Um, she found out reading the newspaper on the bus. Um, so that was devastating to her. And 
no one was held accountable for it. We were just kind of pushed out of the group home to my paternal grandparents. Uh, they raised us for a little bit until my mother thought she received the services that um, were needed and we went back with my mother, um, but she still had not addressed the mental health issues. She just did what the courts needed her to do to get us back. So she got us back. We were homeless and um, just out there in the streets. Like I was begging for food at the Jack in the Box and stuff just cause she couldn't seem to hold it together to you know, have the forward thinking, like I gotta feed them a couple times a day. I gotta find a place for us to sleep, stuff like that kind of started falling on me around the age of nine. Um, so um, I became the parent and then um, she did that for about three years and then she just couldn't do it anymore. And my dad was gonna remarry. So we moved in with them. Uh, we thought maybe, you know, things had changed. Um, and the new lady had two of her own children and then they had twins together. Um, and out of the six, still, I was the only one that was abused. Um, he began abusing me shortly after we moved in again. Um, and from there, it was just like a few years of just abuse. And then I was taken again and put back in the group home I was at when I was six. And to me, there was a weird sense of like going home because there was another staff member, not the one that assaulted some of us, but another one that was still there when I was when I went back when I was 13 and he remembered me. And um, another lady that was there, she remembered me. So it was kind of cool. Um, and it felt like home, but we all know if you're in foster care, uh, typically the placements don't last. Um, so that was the beginning of the continuous, you know, um, bouncing around. I went to a couple psychiatric um, hospitals. I was in higher level care. Um, so level 14 is considered like, like juvenile hall. Um, I was in level 12. Um, so I grew up pretty institutionalized and, you know, people, when they ask, I say I wasn't raised, I was warehoused and transported um, because that's what it was. And um, so oftentimes I would spend months to years on the units um, with like really limited outside exposure because school, psychiatry, everything was on site. So there was no need unless we had to go to the hospital to go out. Um, so I ended up losing my mind and becoming that, you know, I, they put me on, they over medicated me essentially. And so then I became dependent. Um, and then they, somewhere during all this, I was able to um, hold on to it, my education. And I, I graduated from high school. I did um, a dual, like a joint enrollment with the college next to my high school. So I was taking college courses my last semester in high school, and then I transferred over. Um, but I was homeless. Uh, my Medi-Cal medi stopped at 19. So I didn't have my, you know, medications. I didn't know my resources. I had no living skills. So I did what all my other fosters were doing and, you know, we hit the streets and we kind of stuck together and I was fortunate enough to have a car. So we, a few of us slept in my car and we were in a foster care program and we ended up getting kicked out because of the youth that I went into the program with. They, 
did some things and got us kicked out. And so it just led down that path of like fulfilling all the negative st statistics that we're faced with. Um, so I did the incarceration and that was like going home. Some of the correctional officers were actually some of my group home staff and they remembered me. <laughs> so um, it was just this really long journey of like the last 10 years has been this long journey of trying to find who I actually am and um, what I actually need in this life and to succeed. And so I'm finally in school. I'm going to graduate hopefully in 2022, which um, is amazing because if anyone knows the statistics for foster youth, not many of us complete if we enroll. Um, so that's something I'm really proud of to start um, breaking some of those uh, things that were told to me that, you know, I would never do. Um, and currently, uh, my mother is living with me, and I have guardianship of my nephew, my sister's son. Um, so as Chaz said, you know, you're always, this is your life, and you're always a foster. And so I'm starting to realize that now with them being in my home that, um, you know, the, the things that I thought I put behind me are, they're here in my home again, and um, I'm starting to feel it you know, with trying to care for my nephew and uh, have those boundaries with my mother because she feels she's an adult and she's the mother, but I know that the roles are different and they always have been. So I'm currently trying to <laughs> work through that. Thank you, Cass. Wow, okay, everyone, that is that is the panel. We're gonna open it up for for questions feel free to submit your questions and we'll get them answered. Um, Tori, you mentioned APR and I'm wondering if you can expand on that a little bit because that's, I feel like the counties are leaning in that direction a lot more. So what does it mean when the county asks you to do APR? Well, my understanding of it, and this is limited, I'm not an attorney or anything like that. Um, is the allocation of parental responsibility is kind of a softer um, permanency option because the parental rights stay intact. Um, and so when I say, I think that's what happened, um, it was in Nevada, so it's probably a little bit different, but um, it seems strange to me that my siblings and I would be placed with a grandparent long-term. And then when she died, we would go back to a parent and not go back into care. Um, and so that's why I think it was probably APR and then he maintained his parental rights to us. And I know that my mother's parental rights were terminated and that his were not. So, um, that's kind of what I was thinking, but, um, I see APR a lot, especially when I was working with CASA, um, when there's kin involved. Yeah. My understanding is it's kind of like shared custody in a divorce case. Um, and I do, I do see the counties leaning towards, towards that. And I wanna ask you guys, with Families First, Families First is a new federal legislation. It's, it's law and it will be implemented in Colorado. And Families First kind of changes the focus of, of child welfare in that it 
pours services very heavily on the front end of child welfare, right? So into the bio family, the, they don't pull kids right away like they normally would. Some kids will eventually, yes, still come into care. And we're also having kids step down from congregate care, from group homes. I would be interested to hear from you what services you think could have been implemented in your home situation that would have made permanency an option? Oh, it's, you know, hard, hard um, question um, because you have to also balance people's rights for privacy and things like that. Like I, in my experience, my dad was really good at jumping through the hoops and putting on the show. And then as soon as the spectators left, went right back to what everything that was happening. And so, um, and I, I kind of see that now my sister's son is in care in Oklahoma and I see that same pattern in her, like, like she's got her life together right now, but it's, it's built on a shaky foundation because, you know, she, she knows that she has a short period of time to do what she needs to do. And so, um, you know, thinking like utopian laws are different, privacy is different, can we protect children that we know are at risk by having cameras in the house or something like that? Like that seems like an extreme thing, but that would have had to be the level at my home in order to protect me. Gotcha. Um, okay. And I think sometimes with kinship and things like that, like they'll have a grandparent or someone like that live in the home and that creates a protective factor. Um, and I do think if neglect is the issue and the only issue um, that could be, really helpful and supportive to the family or if the whole family is able to move in with grandma so that there doesn't have to be the separation. But if abuse mm -hmm. is the issue, um, that's not safe enough to protect the children. So I have, I, I really, I struggle because on the one hand, so many kids are removed that don't need to be removed and it's a poverty situation, not an abuse yeah, situation. Yeah. And I definitely want to protect those families but I know some of the times we were removed um, were probably poverty based and um, took me several months to talk about what had happened um, once I felt safe. And so, so I just think about all those kids that, you know, on the surface, it looks like this, but it's a really much deeper um, situation that we not, might not know about. And when it comes to horrific things like sexual abuse, that's, that happens, you know, no one knows about it. And so I, I really feel, I feel complicated about families first, because I think that if we never remove the kids, the kids that the family can, you know, put on the facade and show the community that they're functioning, but behind closed doors, horrible things are happening. We're not going to be able to protect those children if we don't remove them from the home. Yeah. Lindsay, you wanted to add something? Yeah. Um, I kind of feel like Tori does. It's, I feel very complicated about it. Um, in the situation with my dad, I don't think there were any services that would have made a difference. I cried out for years and years and years and nothing ever got done. It was like my dad knew the right people to kind of just get it swept under the rug. Um, in the situation with my mom, services absolutely would have made a difference. You know, we were pulled from my dad's by the police, dropped on my mom's doorstep. And they were like, you know, when he gets out of jail in the morning, he can come take them. And so we went into hiding until she could get emergency temporary custody. 
but there was no social worker. There was no child welfare involved at that point. And so we were kind of just handed to my mom and, you know, it was good luck. Here's two teenage girls you've never raised. Have fun. And left a flounder versus had someone come in and said, okay, let us help you adjust right. and work through this. I don't believe I ever would have gone into care. Interesting. Um, question for anyone who would like to, to answer. It says, as a child who has been through so much, how did you accept love from outsiders who wanted to help? What was the best way for you to be approached and welcomed by a new household in a way that you would be able to accept for both the big things and the little things? What, what, what can foster parents do to, to make it easier when you first come in? I don't, I don't know if I can really answer that because I was only at a foster home for a brief moment. Um, like I said, I was institutionalized. Um, but what I can say didn't work was um, going into this foster home and the one that they actually placed me in was a higher level um, foster home. So I don't know if she had this idea of about us that, you know, we were the problem children. And so she had to be harder on us, but she was very militant um, and showed us that we were different than her biological children. Um, so if you, if you can't take these children in, and I guess what I'm trying to say is like, if you can't take them in and treat them no different than your own, then I probably wouldn't do this because <laughs> it's it's damaging to a child because we already know like I knew you're getting paid for me to be here so I already know like you know I'm already different but then to see it in my face to watch your children come and you know you be, you know you do everything for them and then when everyone's gone the food's locked up for us we can't get a ride to school stuff like that you know it was it was damaging um that is and it has long-term effects. Let me do a follow-up for you, Cass, on this. Um, someone says, I take teen girls 14 and up and focus on ILS. By the time they get to me, they are quote unquote done with the system and they're eager to get out on their own. They feel like they've taken care of themselves for so long, it's the next step for them. What do you suggest could help encourage them to stay long enough at least to get their education or stable enough so that they can get a job and can take care of themselves? And also what is ILS? Independent living skills. Excellent. Um, so I did independent living skills. Um, the problem with the, the, the course that I took was it was papers. You know, um, I think twice a month they'd come and give us some papers and this is how you wash your clothes, this is how you do this. But there was never any opportunity to um, reinforce what we were learning on paper, you know, by doing it um, because our clothes were washed for us and but it was, yeah, there was no, uh, there really wasn't an incentive. <laughs> um, I don't think, especially at that age, like just the average teenager, it's already hard to reach them, you know, um, unless you're their peer group. So I would say if you can, if there are some, you know, role model peers that you could use to kind of incentivize them to stay, I would say 
you're at that age, the peer group is the most influential. So if you can get some youth that are doing it and doing it well, uh, bring them along for the ride and try to get them involved to sort of, you know, take on the ones that are having issues. Um, I think that would have, that's why people join gangs. That's why people do things on the streets that we shouldn't is it's our peer group telling us versus these adults who just aren't connecting, you know? Um, so the influence is going to be better. I would say if you can get, yeah, some youth, some, some peer group going, that would be helpful. Um, also make sure it's hands-on. I don't know how the program's set up, but just giving us papers and telling us to read this. A lot of us haven't received the proper education to read the papers. So that's not going to work. Um, uh, I also think, you know, we have to find something in the person that's giving us this information to make us want to receive it. So right. if you can connect them with someone that they can see a, some sort of reflection of themselves in that, that's going to be, long lasting, you know. Lindsay, did you have something to add there? Um, it was mostly back to that very first question you asked about, you know, well, kind of welcoming them into the home. Yeah, what what could what would make a difference there? Um my biggest thing is meet them where they are. Um accept that they may be angry. They are scared. They don't trust you. Accept that and be open to that. And even yeah. as a teenager who acts tough. Oh yeah. I it, mean, I, I, yeah. I came in and I said things to try to terrify you mm -hmm. um, just to see what your reaction would be and then how you would respond to me. Um, and we even had another foster mom. She, I talked to her one day and she was like, you know, I have this teen girl and she tells me red is her favorite color because it reminds her of blood. And she's like, what do I say to that? And mm -hmm. I'd just be like, oh, well, you know, I'm not a fan of red if you're not a fan or, you know, that's, that's an interesting um, comparison. Don't blow it up. Don't show that fear, <laughs> um, but meet them where they are. You know, I understand you're angry. I don't blame you for being angry. It's okay to be angry instead of trying to immediately fly in and change those feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Commissioner, did you have something there? Yeah, I think, you know, that, you know, this panel brings up a lot of good, you know, reflection on what it is to be a foster child. And honestly, the, when we set up Homes for Hope, we set it up for exactly what we're talking about in these questions is, is how do we introduce kids into a home environment without creating even more trauma or even with the kids that are in the home, increasing or bringing back the trauma for them. Um, and how do we do that? And we were very cognizant of how we set those homes up where we could have a, an environment that was less stressful where the police weren't walking into the home or the caseworker wasn't walking into the home, which even in those circumstances kind of trigger the uh, aggression or the retreat within the kids as they, as they see that. So we're trying to separate that so that they, we don't have those triggers as often as maybe we've seen them before. But I'll just say, I mean, it, we learn it in leadership school. We learn it in our jobs. We learn it everywhere we go is just take a minute, stop, listen, 
observe. Um, you learn a lot more without using your mouth, but by using your ears mm. and reading body language. They may act tough. And, you know, granted, some of them may be physically tough, but um, they're all scared, every single one of them. They're protecting themselves from the unknown, what they don't know. And you are an unknown. And until you can provide a, a glimpse of a normalcy or a regularity or, you know, what the policy or procedures are in your home, you know, just barking at them and telling them or giving them a list of here's your do's and don'ts, that I don't know that that's the best approach for someone coming into your home. I would think of it as, as if you walked into somebody else's home and say it's a family member you don't really care for or that you know doesn't really care for you, what kind of procedures would you like to see? Um, you know, is there the immediately you can't do this you can't do this you can do this this is where your stuff goes this is where you're you know you have to make your bed every morning i mean those are traits that you can instill but i don't know that it's a good idea to demand uh, virtually anything at the beginning until you've kind of given them an opportunity to you know decompress right you had that a lot lindsay didn't you with like coming into a home and it's like okay here's the rules you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do this. Yeah. Um, and that was hard. You know, it was, this is your curfew versus my kids don't have a curfew. And when their kids came home, they could go eat versus if I wasn't home at dinner time, I didn't get dinner that night. Um, you know, it was kind of, you, I wasn't welcomed to join in when they played board games or they watch TV shows together. And if I tried to kind of elbow my way in, it was the most uncomfortable feeling to just try to sit in the same room with them. <sighs> um, and I remember, and it really, it made me more angry. It made me rebel towards them even more. Um, my poor caseworker, I'm still in touch with her to this day. She has watched me grow up and have my children. And she still tells me, she goes, you are the one kid that made me do my job every day. <laughs> because I would, I would call her and I'd be like, um, if you don't get me out of here, you're not going to find me tomorrow. And she figured out real fast that I meant it because I was like, I'm not going to stay somewhere that I feel so so physically uncomfortable mm. after everything I've already been through. Can you guys offer some advice on this? It says regarding treatment of foster children versus bio children. We love our foster children, two teens, first placement. We hope to adopt. Uh, we love them as our own. Right now we're struggling with the 13 year old boy who is behind in math and language arts. And so we're working hard to catch him up, but he's comparing himself to our bio sons who aren't behind. And I don't want him to feel different, but we're trying to meet him where he is. Um, he says he feels stupid and we're telling him he's not, and we're advocating for him daily, but we just don't want him to feel less than. I would say it's, it's, it's hard with every situation, like the, especially if the young person has internalized that they are being treated differently, you can't tell them that they're not being treated differently. And it doesn't matter how much, how reassuring it is, like they feel that. 
And so in that situation, I think that might be more of a peer um, situation where the other brothers should talk to their brother about what they struggle with so that he can see that they've struggled before or even I had a really hard time with this and I had to learn it this way. Um, you know, something that they had to overcome similarly. So he can see that they have had other struggles and that everybody has different struggles, maybe highlighting something he's really good at that they're not good at. Um, but I, I think that that's probably better handled in with the boys. Um, and, you know, we say treat your kids the same way, but sometimes foster kids don't let you treat them the same way. I do not let my foster parents treat me the way that they treat their kids because I'm fiercely independent. <laughs> and, and my, my, and my, my sisters who are their bio children, like they kind of have this expectation that mom and dad are going to help us. And I have this expectation that they will only help me if that is the absolute last viable option. Like something horrible will happen unless I ask for their help. Whereas my, my sisters who are their bio kids, like they expect that help at the beginning, not to have to ask for it. And so even though they want to treat us the same, I don't give them the opportunity to treat me the same because I don't ask for help um, in the same way that my sisters do. So sometimes they have to force it on me. Like my water heater broke on my birthday and they were like, we're getting you a water heater for your birthday. And you can't say no. um, and, and, you know, I was like, thank you for the, for the lovely birthday gift and the hot water for years to come. Um, but, but, you know, I would not have asked them for that money. I would have put it on a credit card or done whatever needed to happen. I never would have asked them for that. So they have to force it um, upon me. Whereas my sister would have called and been like, my water heater, I need money. <laughs> so, um, I feel like we do have a different dynamic and, um, it's, I make it harder for them. Definitely. Um, and then I also think that depending on when your kids come into your home, the dynamic can be a little bit different. So like for me, I've been, uh, abused a lot of my life. I don't like to be touched. And my foster family is very like, when my sisters come home, they cuddle up in the couch with my mom. And like, I don't do that because that's not my normal thing, you know? And so my mom and I have had conversations about how like, it's harder for her to like know what, where the line is or what she's allowed to do because I became her child very late. Right. And then my nephew who is seven, he's in care and he's with an auntie, um, that's in uh, Oklahoma and um, he and I have a very physical relationship. Like he runs into my arms and he wants to be held. And, but I held him when he was a baby and she didn't. And so she and I have had a conversation too about like, how can she introduce more um, physical touch into their dynamic? Um, because that wasn't like a, a part of that. Whereas that's always been there for him and I, because he was a toddler and you hold toddlers, right? So I would say, I say I, it's difficult and it's hard for everyone. Um, and on the last question, I think that um, shout out to Kathy because I know her and she's an awesome foster mom. And even though those teens are done with the system, they're not done being loved. Even if they tell you that they're done being loved, they're not. Adults are not done being loved. Kids who are 17 and a half deserve families too. And, but they'll, but they'll tell you that's stupid and I don't want it, right? Because they're, they're in a weird spot in their life. And, um, so I think that always leading with that, like, even if I'm mad at you, even if I'm disappointed in you, even if 
you have to move to a new home, whatever the situation is, know, make sure that they know that they're loved. And that's the biggest life skill I think that we can teach these young people is to. I'm glad you said that, Tori, because Kathy's put a a follow-up in there saying like, you know, sometimes it's, it's wearing and I I don't want to get up, give up, but is there such a thing as trying for too long? Right? Like when, when do I know it's time to let them go? Yeah. I mean, I look, I kind of look at it in time. Um, So for me, like 12 years of instability, abuse, neglect, versus three months in this home you know what i'm saying like things are not going to get reversed they're not they're not going to get reversed in that in that short amount of time and i've been working on some of this stuff for now like 20 years and it's still an issue you know so i i think if you can get to a place where you can at least have some stability in the home but be able to work through them through this with them that's the best you can ask for because (laughs) you're not you're not going to get perfection um you far and few between have i seen foster youth that are just like the ideal foster you know um they're they're coming with years and years of trauma and i also now now that i'm older and i've done some trainings i understand what trauma does to the child brain you know to the adolescent brain and so when you when trauma happens there it's very it's very hard to get past it you know because you know as an adult we can kind of rationalize some things as a child we can't understand these things that are going on, you know, and we've found these survival skills and that foundational time is so imperative to the entire growth of this Mm -hmm. child, you know, that if it's been damaged, it's very hard to see the level of normal, 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 or, you know, um, so I would, I, if at the same time, I would not hold on longer than you can. You know, because um, I've seen that happen, too, where it's like it, it can be to the detriment of the child, you know. So if it's just way too much, I it's sometimes it's just better to, you know, ask for another placement, honestly. Um, Cass, there's a follow up for you. Uh, as a child who spent the majority of the time in institutions, how have you adjusted to being on your own? I have a kiddo who has been institutionalized and though he doesn't like it, he really thrives when he is micromanaged. Any thoughts on how to move him from micromanage to autonomy? That's a hard one. Like and I, I feel like this is this is the case with a lot of our kiddos with um, attachment di- disorders, right? Like reactive attachment disorder. Those kiddos actually do better in in group home type situations where there is no pressure to attach. Well, I think that's why you see many of us go to prison too is because it's something we know, you know, like I said, when I went to, you know, when I was incarcerated, I saw some of my group home staff there. So that for me, that was going home. Um, so that, that it's that I'm 32 now and my poor wife, God bless her. She is, she's my correctional officer. <laughs> and if, <laughs> if you know Femi, you know what I'm talking about. Like she's, she works for the County and she runs a tight ship. And that actually has helped me. At first I fought it. We've been together for five years. I've known her for 10. And when we moved in together, I was like, yeah, right. I'm going to drink every day with my friends. That's what we're doing. And you can't tell me different. I'll get up when I get up. 
And she was like, absolutely not, not if you uh, want to be here with me. So it's <laughs> like, okay, just kidding. Um, I've had enough to drink. Um, I want to try this with you. And so we got into a schedule um, and I am thriving and I'm finally back in school. I'm finally, you know, investing in my career and stuff. And it, it's, it took me 10 plus years to do. And so I don't, I, again, these are things that it's a lifelong journey there's not much that you can do to reverse the institutionalization. They say after six months of being institutionalized that your brain is rewired. Yeah. You know? So imagine doing it for a really long time. Like, what is it doing to your brain? There's still stuff I do that's institutionalized. As soon as I get up, I make my bed. And she's like, why? She was in the army. So she's rebelling. She's like, I'm not making my bed because I had to do it in the army. <laughs> you know? Um, so I, I, I don't know. It, it really, there's no answer, but I mean, I think I would find the positive in the institutionalization because some of it was good. Some of it taught me structure and the ability to follow through and have, you know, some stability. Mm-hmm. So I would and routine, right? Routine yes. is, does help. And we need it to be yeah. successful adults. He, they're going to need it. So I would focus on the positives of it. The more negative stuff that they're doing from the institutionalization incentivize the change, maybe, you know? Like, hey, let's not do this. And if we don't, you know, like maybe we could try this, you know, um, because youth love incentives. I know I did. We used to do those monthly contracts and you got a thing at the end if you did it. That was gold. Tori, you mentioned your bio mom left the picture when you entered care. Do you have any relationship with her now? Oh, Chile, buckle up, y'all. <laughs> I said I still do incentives in the chat too, Cass. I like I can't even clean my house unless I'm like, if you do this and this, you can have a candy bar. Like, or <laughs> even like little things like I'm gonna take a shower. Like, if you do this and this, you get your shower. Like I have to, I have it's built into my brain for some reason, foster care. Um, so do I have relationships with my mom? So my mom abandoned me when I was three. And then when we went back into foster care, when I was 16, um, the foster care people found her because they like to get paid. And um, so they found her and she was in California living with, um, living at a rehab with my youngest sister who I did not know existed. I found out that I had two siblings I didn't know existed on that day. And they were like, we found your mom. You have siblings you don't know about. We found your older siblings. You can't talk to any of them. And then what I did get was a handwritten letter and my mom is maybe about 12 um, mentally, I would say that's, that's like where she functions at. And so I basically got like a letter, very difficult to read um, and also mostly blacked out. And um, that was, that was kind of how I got to re-meet my mother. And then about a year later, um, they're trying to figure out permanent options for us. And for some reason, shipping the three of us to California to live in a rehab and a one room studio with our mother was one of the options on the table. And so I was not, not going to do that. Um, But I did want to go see her and I wanted to go with my sister so that I could advocate for them if it wasn't a good thing, which I was adamant that it was not, but I was willing to give it a try. Um, Probably one of the worst weeks of my life, the week that they had us stay there. Um, 
And um, I would say since that point, so we're, we're, you know, 13 years past that, I've talked to my mom like seven times. I've seen her in person a couple times um, that my older sister, all my siblings, except for one now live in Colorado that happened this year. So as adults, we've all really reconnected. Um, so my older sister moved here this summer and she brought mom to like help her move, um, which was super traumatic. And so I saw her um, and we went to um, like a dinner together and she started saying stuff like, they don't tell you how expensive kids are going to be. And if you could just feed them, if I could have just fed you ramen noodles, then it would have been fine, but they won't let you just feed your kids ramen noodles. And I, like, I almost flipped over the table. You guys like, I'm so angry about it even now. Um, because I know all the other things that were happening. And so for her to, to act like it was the cost of food, um, why she couldn't take care of us, that doesn't excuse 15 years of not a call, no inquiry. You don't know that I'm alive or dead. Um, and so I really have a hard time with her. Um, I think her cognitive level has a lot to do with that because um, she doesn't understand um, at an adult level, everything that's happened. And so um, that all of that to say, yes, I have somewhat of a relationship with her like we're on Facebook and I talk to her every once in a while and um my dad um is I have I have much more um complicated relationship with him because of all of the abuse like my mom abandoned me and you know smoked meth while she was pregnant with me but that's really the extent of the abuse I don't remember any of that really I do remember everything that he did to me. Mm -hmm. And so I don't have a relationship with my dad right now and I never will again. And I've tried several times as an adult to redo that and I will not again. Okay. Commissioner, what made you seek your bio family? Cause it was, you were well into adulthood when you started that journey. Yeah, so, you know, I'm older, so you know, when I was put into adoption, they still had the sealed records and, you know, you couldn't get anything. It wasn't until um, fairly recently that they passed the law where you could get into your records and you could do that. But I never used that resource. What I did was accidental. Um, I actually went on 23andMe because, again, like I said earlier, my biological, or my sister um, and I were having an argument one night about whether or not we were full-blooded, you know, brother and sister and so we said well fine we'll just take 23andme and we'll find out and so we took 23andme and it came back that you know we were half siblings but through that process uh, I actually was approached by a first cousin on both my dad's side or my mom's side my mom was first my mom's side was first and then we kind of figured out through the timelines and through all the relatives and and through what had happened that that she was my mother. And then on my dad's side, it was about a month later that someone came forward from that side and reached out. And then we went back through and found out that my mom knew him, um, that they were married and they were, you know, it was a rocky relationship, but it wasn't intentional. It's amazing what these new DNA mm -hmm. um, tests will allow for. And I saw that there was a question in one of the remarks about when do we have that brutally honest conversation about, you know, these kids, whether you are fostering them or you're adopting them. And I would say, you know, 
it's just like this panel. We're all completely different. Mm-hmm. And I think the timeline and the approach is going to have to be completely different for whatever child is in your home. Um, and I'd love to have the magic pill and say, yeah, you need to, you know, bring in like what somebody said, which I thought was a very, very good idea. Bring in a, a uh, you know, counselor and, and start counseling right away. I think that's a great idea. I think it could help. I just don't know whether it, and I'm not saying it wouldn't, but I just don't know whether it would apply to every child. I think that's something that we kind of trial and error through raising kids. I mean, I, I wish I could give the magic pill and the answer. The only thing I can say as a county commissioner working on this is I try to provide or at least encourage as many resources as we can to provide as many options as we can for parents to utilize. Yeah. Yeah, that was the question. The question uh, the commissioner is referring to is when an infant comes into care and is adopted without ever meeting or seeing their bio family, what are the recommendations on when they become curious about their bio family? What, what I've always learned is you answer what they ask, right? So if, if, if they say, was I in your tummy? You know, you, you say, no, you weren't in my tummy. You were in another woman's tummy. You don't say, and then it was because of this and blah, blah, you know, you just, you answer what they ask. We're in the process right now of working through that with, with our son who is seven. He came to us at 28 days, saw mom sporadically throughout his first year. um, And that's about it. However, he still talks about his birth parents every day. I miss them. I love them. It's not fair. I don't get to be with them. And he's right. He's right. He also looks different than we do. So he, you know, we, we work with a trauma therapist and I, I think this is something that he will have to process several times in his life based on where he's at, um, emotionally. Um, question. Many of you have siblings who went to other homes and are having struggles as adults. What advice would you give to building sibling relationships when siblings are in a less safe situation? Um, let, let's start there. I know there are a lot of questions about siblings. Let's start there. Can I get on my soapbox? Yes, please. So siblings have rights in Colorado and we have ratified and amended those rights. And I think that we need a shift in foster care, but especially in adoption to put the sibling relationship higher than any other relationship, higher than the parent relationship, higher than the new relationship with the family, because our siblings um, are our lifelong relationship. And if we're doing separation of siblings, that is so much more traumatic than just being removed from your home. And I'll say that with my experience, but I believe that for everyone, because being removed from the home, I understood that, like, we're not safe, you know? But, but then being ripped from my siblings, nothing will ever make me understand that. And even in situations with like divorces and things like that, where the kids are the victims of the fallout, that is unacceptable. And we as a society need to change that. And so that's my soapbox. Um, I will say that um, it's tough in foster care and especially tough after permanency when I think, and this is what the question is saying, you don't want to expose your child to an unsafe situation. And so I think that what we need to do is we need to think outside the box. 
Um, my program sibling is doing this right now. We're thinking like, how can we help when one kid gets adopted and the other kid doesn't, or two kids get adopted from different families? How do we help, um, you know, navigate that? Because we don't give the parents the tools to do it. And so the system and the nonprofits that help the system need to address that because we can't expect the parents to do it, um, the adoptive parents. So when you're, when you have a kid in your home that is a sibling, um, that is so important. And even if those kids aren't in care, you know, the complicated dynamics and things like that, there are ways for these siblings to have connection. Um, that's one thing I'm working with with the sibling program right now, making it virtual so that um, there is more safety. It's just a phone call, um, but we could really celebrate birthdays and stay connected, which is what's really important. Um, and any time that we can advocate for sibling permanency, we need to advocate for sibling permanency. And so I was going to answer the question about um, having teens in your home, how do you connect with them? Like if you have a teen in your home, make them feel like you care about them for the next 10 years, you know, make them feel like that, figure out how, what kind of boundaries you have to put in place to be able to be that person for them, because that's what teens in care really need. Siblings in care on the same late wavelength, they need that person who says, I care about your relationship with your sibling and I'm going to make it happen for you. Um, anytime a child can see a grown up standing up for them, um, that builds a, an unbreakable bond. And so I would say that's the most important thing when it comes to siblings is be the squeaky wheel, squeak louder, squeak until the wheel falls off and put a squeakier wheel <laughs> on. But as foster parents, we have a huge responsibility to advocate for our children, the children in our home, to have connection with their siblings. Commissioner. So I just wanted to say, you know, Tori, you're, you're spot on. Um, I appreciate you expressing that. And coming from a family that, you know, where my sister and I were split up very young and kept apart for the, for the majority or almost all of the foster um, time that we spent. The, the issues that it built in my sister were greater than it was in me, but my sister was very traumatized about the idea that she didn't have me. Um, mm -hmm. She was missing me. She was, you know, she was kind of my older sister and apparently, you know, she, she was, I don't know if maternal instincts are that, that young, um, but it, it took a toll on her. So I, I agree, the whole idea of keeping siblings together through the entire process, whatever it may be, is extremely important. And I know I harped on this before, but when we created Homes for Hope in Adams County, it was so that we could keep those kids together without splitting them up into different separate uh, foster families. As you know, foster families are hard to come by and availability of space is very hard for, for a lot of foster families. So that's why the kids get split up. Um, there may not be the capacity in the foster families that are available to take all of them at once. Whereas Homes for Hope allows for the larger sibling groups to be kept together in the time frame that you decide, well, can we put them back with kin? Can we put them with the grandparents? Can we put them with some other family member, or can we find a foster home that we can appropriately put all the siblings in together? It gives that kind of gap coverage, if you might, 
to allow those those siblings to stay together in probably the most traumatic moment of their life, which is the initial separation. And I can't express enough how much I agree with Tori that keeping siblings together is a, I, I mean, we need to make that a top priority wherever we go, whether it's in foster care, whether it's in adoption or whether it's with kinship, um, keeping those siblings together, unless of course there's a safety issue. And, and I know those are rare and far between, but I really think that should be one of the number one issues we go after. Yeah, that you, now that you say safety issue, Commissioner, we have a follow-up um, from a, a foster parent who says, I've received four siblings nine months ago. It's my first placement. I'm a single mom. The youngest sibling is six, and he's in need of a different environment for safety of many, including himself. What can I say and do to help the other three who are staying? They also have an older and two younger siblings already in different homes. So that sounds like a group of seven. I've seen larger groups like this where the foster parents have a relationship then and like they meet at the park every Saturday. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's doable. Um, it's hard. It's a lot of effort, but how, and this may be a better job, honestly, for their therapist, um, how to talk to the three who are left behind when one gets moved. Any thoughts? Well, and Renee, I, I love this question because it, it really is on the foster parent to mend those broken hearts and, and what you say and how you say it is really important. Um, so my sisters left our foster home. Um, the only horrible thing my foster parents ever did to me. Right. Um, and we had conversations, you know, leading up to it, you know, the tough family conversations of like, we can't continue doing this. Um, they had individual conversations with me about what was going on with my sisters and, you know, asking like what we could do and things like that. And, 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 and ahead of time told me, we don't want to do this, but this is what it looks like we're going to have to do. And so um, I think I respected that they included me in the um, conversation. Um, like Chaz talked about his sister. I think that that maternal instinct happens very young, especially when um, children are parentified. And I have been raising these girls since I was three years old. And so um, I've experienced horrible things in my life and that was the worst day of my life. Um, in my amazing foster home, surrounded by love, that was the worst day of my life, was losing them. And I think that um, my foster parents did everything that they could um, to help bridge that transition. They got them luggage, like there was a lot of dignity in the situation. Um, I think that what was difficult was the people from the county, um, our caseworker, um, for some reason thought that my sisters were stealing things. So they made um, me and the other two um, biological children come in and check their bags. And, I, and I, I wouldn't do it. I said they could have whatever they want. Um, so I think that um, anytime we can add dignity back into the equation for the children that are leaving and the children that are staying and not try to act like nothing happened, like talk about what happened talk about it over and over and over again and and hear them because what you don't want is for them to see for them to not understand um, and then to see you as the person who took their siblings from them 
Um, and then also, um, Renee talked about like the the foster parents that take it upon themselves to go to the park and stuff like that. Like that's kind of what I'm talking about with the sibling program. And we could do virtual calls and then in Adams County, um, if the kids are closer, we can do in-person visits too. Um, and that's all free and covered by my nonprofit. So um, I think that there are resources out there, um, especially when there's a safety issue. I think sometimes everybody just kind of throws up their hands and says, we can't do this. And that's what we can't do. We have to think of a way for these siblings to be safe and be together. Um, even if they can't live together, we have to think of a way for them to stay connected. Um, and in that transition, I think it's so important that you value the heartbreak and you listen to it. Thank you. If, if a child has never had a relationship with siblings, do you suggest trying to build one if, if it's safe? Yes. The, so the sibling bond is, it's, I, I don't even know how to say it. It's a magical thing. And my two siblings that I didn't know about, I love them just as much as my other siblings. Um, and we've been able to build um, a bond and a relationship as adults. And it sucks that we had that relationship stolen from us as children. Just because how, people do you, how do you recommend they would start something like that? I mean, that's going to be awkward at first, right? You kind of just have to sit in the discomfort, I'm guessing, of you introduce them. They know their siblings. Some, someone is saying, I'm clarifying, my son never had a relationship with his siblings, but I want him to. How do I introduce him and help build those relationships? The, the, the relationship will build itself. We just have to create the opportunities. Those kids love each other, especially if they know that they exist, even if they don't have a relationship, but they know that the, uh, that they exist, they love each other. Okay. And so we just have to figure out how we bring them together. Yeah. And it's hard. I mean, someone says, what about safety issues? We know this when, and we've seen this before when siblings are placed together, they have shared trauma or they trigger each other. And that causes unsafe living situations. And I mean, it, it happens. We know that. And sometimes they, they can't be together then. Um, and maybe eventually they can build a relationship again. Well, I think the healthy boundaries and just life skills and how to maintain relationships is imperative to any adult. And the end goal is to prepare them for independence. So I would reinforce what needs to be taught for any relationship. Um, but yes, these things can happen, but what if they don't? If we don't ever introduce them, we don't know. Okay. And if we don't give them the tools to do it appropriately, they will become inappropriate. <laughs> so I think our responsibility or the foster parents' responsibility would be to work with them and to get their skills up to par to introduce them to each other or to reintroduce if it is a safety concern, then the two foster parents can work together to make sure that they're on the same page and they're teaching them both, hey, this is healthy boundaries. This is how we conduct ourselves. This is, you know, because they're, they're acting from a place that they know. And if all they know is abuse and neglect and, you know, sexual abuse or whatever the case is, they're going to act on that. Um, so, it's our responsibility as the adult to come in and say, hey, actually, that's not how we touch each other. That's and this is why. And, and you know, with my son and my nephew, I've had to do that because I don't know what my nephew's been exposed to. So now he's in the house. with right. my son. Right. And 
my son has had a different life and we're seeing the two come together and they're, they have two ideologies about life, about everything, <laughs> you know? And so I'm constantly, I'm constantly, if they're up, I'm up, we're watching them. Um, when I go to bed, there's a camera in the living room that shoots right to the bedroom doors. I know when they're coming out because I have to catch everything now before it, it poses a threat to my son, you know? And I'm thankful that my nephew hasn't been showing it, but I know he was in, he was, you know, exposed to some unhealthy, unhealthy things, you know? Um, yeah. And so it's my job to come in and be like, Hey, that's not how we touch each other. That's not, that's not how, you know, if you're looking for some affection, I, I'm, I'm always hugging him. I'm always patting him on the head. I'm not very affectionate, but I'm trying um, and showing him the healthy way to do things because I mean, I, I would hate to see two siblings because they grew up in this environment where things were just what they were to see the relationship, uh, you know, uh, be, be taken away from them because they don't have the skills. And that's what it comes down to is that they don't have the skills. I don't think all these people are like horrible predators or anything. It's they're only acting from what they know. So yeah, I would say try and try again. And you know, just make sure somebody's always present in the beginning until they can come to a place where they're okay with each other, you know, but I wouldn't. That's just helpful. There a lot of, lot of questions around this with, you know, one who's not safe with the others or comes home triggered from visits, um, screams all night. Um, it's hard. I mean, it's not something that's just magically solved. It's something that you may take a break from and then come back to and try again, if you feel appropriate. Um, Can I just add something? Yeah, of course. I feel like sometimes as adults, we're so adamant on protecting kids from what we think they shouldn't know. But in reality, these children probably have seen so, so much that being honest about what they're seeing is going to help them more in the long run instead of trying to shy away from it. And I know it's uncomfortable, I get it, you know, but I think transparency and being direct about the situation is a lot better than trying to just, you know, tiptoe around it and not really address it. You're, you're better off, if they're showing it, address it and tell them straight up what it is. We don't do this because of this. And it and, and in the long run, it's, it's, with my nephew, I was very direct. He, you know, brought up the fact that, hey, have you ever been so away from your mother for so long that, you miss her and you're sad. And so that was his way of saying, Hey, I'm feeling something about not being with my mother, even though she's mm -hmm. not what he needs to be around, you know? Right. So I had to tell him, yes, I did. My, my parents could not take care of me. My mother left me for 12 years. And after that, the behavior immediately changed. Now he's like walking around the corners and he's like looking for me and he finds safety in me because of that pure relationship. Yeah. I have the experience that he's going through. And so if you don't have the direct experience as a foster parent, find someone in, in one of these groups, find someone at a nonprofit or somebody who has the experience of this child, because that's, I'm telling you that peer group is imperative and it's it, in the long run. That's what, what grabs the child, no matter what age he's nine. And he knows like, even though I'm 32, he's like, I see me in you. I, mm -hmm. I can identify with that. Yeah. And I mean, hiding it, what you said is, is so, so true. Hiding it or avoiding it isn't fixing it. He's still sitting with that, with that feeling. And so uh, addressing it and processing it will help him move past that much quicker. Um, for, for Lindsay and for Chaz, 
Um, someone's saying, in hindsight, what do you think could have been done by a foster parent that would have made a difference to you as a teen? Um, I'll jump on this one. This is my favorite topic. Um, I think something that kind of everybody on the panel has been saying in one way or another is have conversations. Um, for me as a teen, I knew I had no control in so much of my life while in care. I didn't get to choose where I went, what, you know, half the time, even what I wore, because I had very limited clothing. Uh, there were so many choices I didn't have. And a lot of my foster parents didn't treat me like I knew what was going on. They wouldn't have those conversations with me of, hey, you know, this happened, why? It was, uh, you got in trouble at school today. I don't care why it happened. Now you're a bad kid versus talking to me, you know, saying, hey, you're going to have to go in and do therapy with your mom. How do you feel about that? Is that something you're open to versus it was a, hey, you're going to do therapy with your mom. Good luck. Have fun. Good on you. Um, so really, you know, treating them as a person and finding choices to give them when you can. Um, that was one thing that made a huge difference. And the other thing for me, and I laugh because I hate sharing it, but it's important. So smoking was my mechanism to cope as a teenager. Um, every foster home I went into, it was, no, you can't smoke. You're not legal. You can't, no, just no. And if I was going to do it anyways, like seriously. The last foster home I went into was actually a therapeutic foster home. And we had to go meet in a neutral place. We met for like an hour and a half to get to know each other. And then they had to agree to taking me and I had to agree to going to them. And so I was like, yep, I'm gonna tell them I smoke. We'll see what they think of that. And I remember the foster mom, she goes, okay. She goes, I get that. I'm a smoker too. And I was like, wait, okay, hold on. Now you've got my attention. And she didn't try to take that away from me. You know, it was okay. The children in my home do chores to earn an allowance. She goes, your choice is you can earn an allowance or the allowance you would earn, I can buy your cigarettes with. And I was like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> hold on. And that was, it was the first time I felt heard. And it was a huge moment for me because they were meeting me where I was. They weren't trying to take away the one coping mechanism I had as unhealthy as it was. And they weren't going to fight me on it. You know, it was okay, you smoke, that's fine. But here's this house rule you have. And I was like, okay, you know, we're doing a little give and take here. I, I can work with this. I felt like I had choices. And that was huge. Awesome. I'm going to try to get through. We have a lot of questions. So I'm going to just start at the top here and see if we can get through some of these. Renee, can I, can I, yeah, totally. you know, I don't, I don't come from the aspect of here's what I needed when I was in foster care because I was so young, but what I come at this from is here's what I received when I was in an adoptive home that allowed me to become the person that I am today. And what that was is life skills. My parents were very adamant that I learned, you know, some or most life skills whether it's 
being able to balance a checkbook or money management, or it was cooking or it was sewing. I can sew to this day. I still sew for my family. I can, I had a music background. I played piano and violin and the trumpet. Um, I played that throughout, you know, middle school and high school. Um, I learned how to cook at a very early age because my mom, my adoptive mom told me I would never meet a woman in this day and age that could cook. And so I better learn how to be able to take care of myself. Um, and so she was adamant that I, that I learned how to take care of myself, not that it was going to be um, something that would make me, you know, better as a someone else's thing. It was, they taught me how do I take care of myself? Because the one person that is always going to be there for you is you. And I respected that point from them. And I still to this day, and that's what I've taught my daughter, is that the only person that will ever be there for you is you. You can have relationships, you can have uh, anything else you want, family, whatever. But the one person that you can always rely on to be there for you is you. And you can do it better if you know these life skills. And this will carry you through. And I still believe that to this day that I don't, I don't care if it's one life skill or 20 life skills. The more life skills that you can teach a child while you have their, their attention and their, their physical presence with you, the better off that child is going to be. Super helpful. Thank you. Uh, someone says, thank you all for your willingness to share. What is your advice to speak to teachers slash coaches to give them a heads up about our foster kiddos background from hard places so that they have empathy and are respectful and understanding, but without oversharing their story? I think that, that that's a hard one. And um, my husband and I have fostered with kinship before. And that was something that we struggled with because we wanted our foster son to be treated like all the other kids on the team. But then at the same time, um, he had some different behaviors and things like that, that you have to understand and have empathy for um, where he's come from. And so for us, it was more about like explaining um, the diet, like, because our foster son was on the autism spectrum. And so like we talked about that, but I never felt like people needed to know what was going on with his family background. So we've even had um, coaches and teachers ask, like, why is he not with his parents? And because he lives with us. And so I think that I'm a little bit more guarded with the, um, personal information stuff because it pisses me off when people label me or um, try to explain something based on me being in foster care. And so um, for me, it's like, tell the people who need to know what they need to know. And that might be talking with like the vice principal, and then they have a conversation with the teachers and the coaches. Um, but personal information is personal information. And so um, if, if you were going through something um, and you would feel comfortable with us sharing it with your boss is very similar to a kid going through something and you sharing it with the coach and the teacher. 
Like, like, you know, they might need to know, Hey, I'm going through a divorce, but they don't need to know all the details that led to Mm -hmm. the divorce. Right. Yes. Yes. I think, did you have a follow-up? Oh yeah. I would say for like long-term, we need to focus on educating the general public too, because when I first got out, I would say like, you know, I worked for the County through a program for foster kids. And so the staff there, you know, they had been there for decades and they were settled into their positions. And so they didn't understand foster care. And I was confused how you work for the county and not understand one of the larger entities within it. So I come into the office and they're like, well, what'd you do? Like everyone kept asking me what I did. And I was like, I don't think you guys understand how foster care works. Like there's, (laughs) I didn't do anything. I was taken from my parents. Um, I was institutionalized as if I did something, but that's another topic. Um, But as far as why I was in foster care, it was through no fault of my own. And I think that needs to be addressed at a larger, like at a macro level, like we need to educate the general public um, about foster care so that when they hear, hey, this is a foster kid, maybe it'll trigger something in them. Like, okay, I know the typical things that happen with foster kids, why they would be in foster care. And they're not immediately treated like, you're right. Yeah. The you myth know? is something they did. Um, when we do outreach events, that's something that we talk about as a myth that uh, we say no kid is in care due to something they did. That's just that's just not true. Someone says, and I think this is interesting, is it worth bringing up the unfortunate fact that some of this is just a matter of luck? Um, I think he's referring to kind of uh, where you are, how you beat the statistics. He says, I'm, I'm adopted and I firmly believe that the separation trauma I survived as an infant led me to make some seriously risky decisions later in life, including a suicide attempt. I'm still here, obviously, but some of it is due to sheer luck. Just wondering if that will provide any perspective. If not, just some rosy hope. Um, I don't consider it luck. Um, as a teen, I had multiple suicide attempts. Most were way too close. Um, I consider it a miracle that I'm here. I did a lot of risky behaviors um, and they were conscious choices on my part. And I look back at that now and I know that, but I don't look at where I am and think I'm here by luck. I look at myself and go, I am here because I fought, I fought tooth and nail to not be another statistic. I made a conscious choice in my life to go, I'm not going to be an alcoholic like both of my parents. I'm not going to abuse my children the way my dad did. I am going to be the first person in my family to graduate from college. And I fought my way through all of those. And I fell more times than I can count. Um, I would revert back to risky behaviors at times. And I was able to take a moment to look at myself and go, what the hell do you think you're doing? You know, get back to where you need to be, fight to do what you want to do and not be another statistic. Um, I know that's not the case for everybody, um, but no, I don't consider where I am to be luck at all. And I, I know that I think, 
for you, Lindsay, and I think for you too, Tori, there's also some survivor's guilt. Both of you have siblings who didn't make it to where you are. Yeah, I mean, I've got my sister that she never went into care. Um, my dad did not abuse her, but she was taken with me when we went to my mom's. Um, when I went into care, she stayed at my mom's because my mom kicked me out. So she was charged with abandonment. And my sister struggles to this day with drug addiction, parenting her children, maintaining relationships, all of those things that I should probably be the one struggling with. Um, but those are the things that she struggles with. And I do wonder, you know, how how are we where we are when we had very different upbringings for the most part? Yeah. And I think, I think there's something to be said for having independence thrust upon you. Like some people pick it up and say, okay, this is heavy, but I'm carrying it and I'm not going to let anybody else carry it for me. And other people can't pick it up. And um, so I don't know if that has birth order or what, but, um, my younger sister is, you know, she's, she lives on the fringes. She has a rap sheet that's several pages long. She goes to jail all the time. She is a drug addiction. She has never raised her child. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it, it's kind of the question of how do you, where's the fork in the road where I didn't go. And basically my sister is my mom 2.0, like doing the exact same things over and again. Um, and I went a different path that nobody else has gone. And so, you know, what is it? And I don't know. I don't know what it is. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with support, but then I also have another sister who has never had support. I have a couple sisters who have never had support from anyone, never had a permanent adult in their life and they're thriving too. And so I don't, I don't know what it is. It's a will within us to be able to carry the trauma and some people can carry it and some people can't. And, and I would say that it's a roller coaster too, like what Cass was saying and what Chaz said, you're a foster kid your whole life. Like these things come up all the time. And, um, you know, I think one of the reasons why I stay so busy and feel, you know, so stressed out all the time is because I can't slow down or I'll start to think about um, all of these things that I don't want to think about. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I think some people channel it into positive things and, um, it would be a lot easier and maybe more fun to channel it into drugs, but I'm terrified of drugs and I'm very terrified of drugs. And I have a relationship with drugs for my childhood that is very different from my sister who uses drugs and saw no issue with what our parents were doing. Um, wasn't always the person that was abused. I was usually the one that was abused. So, um, you know, doesn't really, doesn't really correlate the abuse with the drug use. Um, and, you know, kind of has this like, well, our parents use, and so I do too, and it's not a big deal. And they're perfectly fine. Has no problem now as an adult that she lives in this life with what has happened to her either. So, I think that, you know, everybody has different cognitive capabilities and trauma is heavy and we always have to carry it. Tori, you were saying that you don't receive love like your sisters. Would you say you still feel loved even though the physical touch is not needed? 
And how has that love been received for you personally? And to all of you, how have you felt or received love? So yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a touching person. Um, with with like my kids and my nieces and nephews, like I want to be that person, and I am. Um, and I kind of said that like with my nephew, um, he's always you know wanting to snuggle me and hug and stuff. But his auntie, who he doesn't have that really close relationship when he was tiny, um, met her later. He lives with her now, and and they have a really distant relationship um, physically. But I know that he feels loved. I feel loved. Um, I think that it's a different kind of love. And even though I do feel extremely loved by my foster parents, that doesn't, that sweetness doesn't take away from the bitterness of my mother who's supposed to love me doesn't and, you know, left me and my dad who was supposed to take care of me didn't. And, and so, so, you know, the love for my parents and the love for my sisters and the love for my husband and my kids and all of these things that I've added into my life that I didn't have when I was a child, don't take away from the bitterness of what I have to carry. Anyone else? The question was, how do you receive love? Yeah. I think, yeah, I'm not a touchy-feely person, <laughs> not one to come up and hug and stuff, but um, the way I express my love is through like acts of kindness or service, and um, so for my nephew, you know, like I got him all established here in our home, and it was the little things, like he likes Minecraft, so I got him a set of Minecraft sheets and stuff like that, but I probably never just go up to him and hug him, you know, like that's mm. But when he comes up to me, I can put my feelings to the side and hug him, but I would probably never initiate it. Um, the only person I feel safe enough to do that with is my wife. Um, but everyone else, I, I still do side hugs from foster care. You know, uh, there was like a five second rule. If you hugged longer than five seconds, then it was inappropriate and stuff. So I think some of that's still in my head. Like, you know, I keep everyone at a distance. Um, because you got to think for years, all the, the only contact I received was being restrained. So right. to me, when you're that close, we're about to have problems, you know? Right. Okay. Um, well, there's a follow-up to when we were talking about um, congregate care, group homes, um, reactive attachment disorder. Someone said these issues are so much bigger than, than we are. Very true. Um, is there ever a moment, especially with teens, to be able to speak honestly about their lack of attachment and their need for a lot of routine and structure. I know that offering children the language around their, what they're feeling is powerful, but we also seem to shy away from being quote unquote brutally honest within foster care. I, I know it's a delicate balance, but does anyone have any wisdom or, or advice on this? Do you guys understand? I, I yeah. totally understand what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah. The, so, so I would think that um, for us being um, diagnosed is not helpful a lot of times, um, especially if 
it is kind of contrary to how you see yourself. And so, and so for me, I have this really unhealthy relationship with the medical field now as an adult, because I would like go to my therapist and like today I'm bipolar and next week I'm OCD and like, here's some pills, take them, take them, take them. And so even though I see a therapist and that's an important part of my self-care, I, I told her at the very beginning, like, you will not diagnose me and you will not give me medicine or I will not come back. Um, and I kind of have like a weird feeling about like going to the doctor. Like I'm, I'm afraid that they're going to tell me I have something, you know, like I have, I have this fear. And so even just going to like get a checkup is this like crippling anxiety for me. Um, and I think that a lot of that comes from people putting labels on me that are sticky and I don't want them stuck on me. And so I think sometimes having the language can help. For our foster son, um, we've had him multiple times, um, but one of the times that he was institutionalized before coming to us was when he was diagnosed um, with um, Asperger. So he's on the autism spectrum. And, and for that, because it's such a, like a behavioral um, thing, understanding why the behaviors were happening made it so much easier for us to to build safety and to have a conversation about, um, you know, how he copes. Um, whereas before we knew that that's what was happening, it was like, why are you doing this? This doesn't make any sense. So in that, like having the diagnosis helped, but I don't, I don't ever think that um, for him, you know, it was like a, oh, okay, I understand myself better now. I think it was like a, they're, they're talking about me. Like I'm, I'm weird. Cause I'm, you know, I have autism. Um, but it, it did help us as the parents. But I think for the kids, like, that's not helpful to me to have the labels and the diagnoses for the kid's perspective. I feel like one of my favorite things to read, and I don't know why, is the DSM. <laughs> um, I thoroughly enjoy understanding everything that they think I am. So as a child, I would read it, you know, in the foster care, you know, if I could get my hands on it, I was trying to understand because yeah, we did hear all these labels being thrown out in, in our direction saying that we were this and we were that, but no one followed through and said like, well, this is why we're seeing these behaviors. And this is why I've come up with, it was just, no, you're this and you need to take this. And so, yeah, that is damaging. And I come, Tori, I'm a hundred percent with you. When I go to the doctor, I'm almost being dragged by my wife. Like I do not like to go to the doctor for that reason. And, um, so for, I, I think it depends on the child too, because I like to know the ins and outs of everything. And so if you're telling me that I'm borderline personality, why, what are you, what, it, what made you come to that conclusion? And they don't, I, I'd offer the DSM to the children. Like, this is what they're saying. <laughs> do you think, and discuss it with them. Like, do you think that this is, this is a fair label for you? Do you, why or why not? Cause the child might be like, no, like, I'm, I know I'm not that I'm just frustrated or whatever the case is, you know, but oftentimes, yeah, we do shy away. And that's what I was saying earlier is like, you don't need to censor this life for these children, because they, this, this life has been uncensored. Oftentimes, since they were born, this life has come uncensored. So when you do all the, you know, trying to hide and do all that weird stuff, to me, it's weird, like, because I can see and most of these children can see that something is being withheld. And that's more frustrating because you want me to sit here and explain my whole life story to you, but you're withholding information about me. 
So it's okay to say something like your body may need something, your body needs something different to help it relax than others might. I mean, it's that, that is the case. And I feel like with, with, with our son, he understands that, that his body always wants to try to move and that there are certain things he can do to help ground himself. Um, this is so helpful. I wish we had two more hours. Um, Tori, someone says, I appreciate your response. We adopted a sibling group of three children years ago. And today all three have approached our relationships differently, right? One is extremely close with us. One is a struggling adult and keeps in contact, but has many needs. And the other has dropped all communication with us. Um, also, Tor Tori, if you can answer some of these to you in the chat, like, will your nonprofit do in-person sibling visits for other county cases if they live in Adams? Um, are they therapeutic visits? Um, someone says, for children who've been abused, and I mean, this is this is a tough one, right? How can we protect them from being re-victimized as, as they go older and go out in the world? And Commissioner, I feel like that's a lot of what you were talking about earlier is just and you, Cass, right? Te teaching them the truth and and life skills. You know, I, and Renee, I'll just go by what Cass said. And you know, kids in this, we we didn't choose this life. We didn't say, "Hey, this is the path we want to go down," or "Hey, that looks like a fun roller coaster. I'm going to do that for the rest of my life." Right? This is something that was a circumstance that was brought upon us, whether it was you know, through voluntary actions or involuntary actions, it was brought upon us. And, you know, Cass is absolutely right when she says, we've lived a traumatic life. It's not that we can't or shouldn't be exposed to any more trauma. It's what trauma is it that we need to have? And what we need to have is honesty. We need to have the truth. We need to know and be able to deal with that because it's a lot easier dealing with that then to later on have to deal with what we're going through now and deal with lies, right? That it just increases or exasperates the things that we have to deal with. We're in this through no fault of our own. We're yes. going to live with this through the rest of our life. The least we could ask from our peers who are here trying to help us and our, our parents and caregivers, whoever they may be, is just be honest with me. I don't choose how you perceive me. I'm not able to label myself like I am on this screen as he or him or what I perceive myself as. You have to be honest with us and listen to us as to what we identify with, who we are. That's, that's what we're asking. That's what we need. I, I just think that that's so neglected in, in a lot of these areas is to, you know, who are you and how do you perceive yourself? And no one really asks that question. I think too, you know, for me, as a child in care, we are so vulnerable. Our lives are laid open for so many to see. And what I really looked for from my foster parents and even my caseworker was vulnerability in them. I needed them to show me those moments and be vulnerable with me so that I didn't feel so alone. And like, it was only me splayed out for the world to see. 
So instead of it, a foster parent always having it together and presenting as if it's okay, everything's great to kind of sometimes say this, this sucks and I'm not sure how to help. Say, I don't know. Yeah. Say, I don't have all the answers, but I will help you find them. You know, we are learning this together. Exactly. Do any of you, someone's asking, do any of you use therapy or mental health services now to help you continue to process trauma? Are there any organizations or resources that are particularly helpful? So I get pro bono therapy through a home within and they find therapists throughout the country. They're not everywhere, but they are in Denver. Um, they find therapists that will take on like one client pro bono. So I've been with my therapist now for seven years. It's the second longest relationship I've had in my life, (laughs) but no. Um, so I've been with my therapist for seven years and it doesn't matter if I change jobs, change insurance, if she's changed companies a couple of times, um, she keeps me on pro bono through the, through the nonprofit. So I really appreciate that because, um, it's not something I would be able to afford. I don't, and I probably should. Um, (laughs) Poor Renee, who works with me on a daily basis, has learned there are days I come in and I've had this major revelation because I've learned there are so many things I have blocked out. Yeah. And something so small will trigger some huge memory that I had no idea had occurred until that moment. And then I literally have to relive it. Yeah, but we've talked about that before, Lindsay, and you are so self-aware about your past, right? You know areas of your past that you've processed and you know others that you haven't. And just knowing that is already a huge step towards healing. And someday when you're ready, you'll process it, right? I hope. I'm, I mean, I, I honest, I avoid going to therapy because I am terrified of what it could bring up. Yeah. I think I don't really, really know. <laughs> Sorry, my cat's trying to walk <laughs> off the keyboard. Um, so I have some compound issues. Um, I don't think I mentioned, but I'm African-American. Um, and it's, uh, my mother's Italian and German. Um, but I have always been put into the category of African-American. Um, whether it was against my will or me self-identifying, whatever the case is, I was treated as if I was black. Um, There have been some really bad things that have happened in this country um, with, you know, the African-American population. And it pushed me away from medical, um, any type of medical. And then it happened to me in foster care. I was a guinea pig. They put me on these medications, would not hear me out, were writing all these chart notes about me and I couldn't see them. And so it just further confirmed that I would never receive the adequate medical care. And so I, I refuse all medical care, um, especially therapy. I I won't do it. Um, But like I said, with my mother and my nephew being here, I'm being triggered on a daily. So the only thing that ever helps me and has ever helped me is doing the speaking engagements. That's where I'm able to regain power of the things that have happened to me. Um, and I've been doing, I've done over, I think I'm at like almost 300 speaking engagements. 
um, nationwide from DC to the state capital in California to, you know, here in Denver. Um, I've spoken with some legislators out here and that's where I get my healing is regaining the power and offering that power to other youth who don't know that they can regain the power in their story. Um, so for me, that's going to be as good as it gets for therapy um, or any type of, you know. Well, and I, that kind of is your therapy, Cass, and it helps you and it helps all of us. Um, do any of you, we'll finish up these last couple here, have res other resources that you would suggest for adults that are dealing with the life of being an adult child from care or an adoptee are uh, there so many services for youth do you guys know of any that work with a, adult ad adoptees or i don't off the top um, of for my me, head it's really helpful to be a part of the um former foster communities that i'm a part of online um especially because my siblings are not so um they sometimes when I'm having a really hard time, I'll go and I'll post on those private pages and only people who have walked in my shoes uh, can see it. Right. And so that that really helps me a lot to feel connected to other people who know what I've been through. Um, but as far as services. Um, no, like the any, any way I can with my nonprofit eliminate age requirements, I do. So like our college program has no age requirements um, and things like that. But as far as like support for people who are former foster youth, like it, it only exists within our own community of people who have been in foster care. Okay. Um, somebody says we are six days from adoption. Wahoo. Our kids are little, but is there anything we can do to help them embrace the quote unquote foster kid labeled in a way that could be positive? They've been dealt a bum hand, but how can we help them not allow that to define them negatively? And Lindsay, you talk about, this has kind of changed over the years. Yeah. Um, when I was in care, Every foster home I went to, you know, somebody would walk up, who's this? And they're like, oh, this is our foster kid. Um, I very quickly lost my identity. I did not know who I was outside of being a foster kid. The last foster home I went to, we went out to dinner. Somebody walked up and asked, who's this? And I immediately kind of dropped my head. And I was thinking, yep, here we go. I'm the foster kid. And they're like, oh, this is Lindsay. She's staying with us for a while. And I remember my sitting on the table and then it was this sudden realization of who is Lindsay I, I don't know who she is and I have to learn that um now as an adult sharing my story seeing myself on the other side I kind of wear the foster kid label as a badge of honor um for me it screams I survived but it did not scream that to 15, 16 year old me. Um, really encouraging them to learn who they are and help them figure out their identity is the biggest piece of advice I can give you because I had to learn that on my own. And it took, I think I'm still figuring it out really, even now. Well, and like the commissioner said, it will always be part of their story, right? It, it will always be, be part of them and part of their, it's not who they are. It's something that happened to them. 
um, or something they experienced. Um, any closing thoughts from any of you? Thank you all so much for sharing with us today, for sharing your vulnerability. Anything anyone would like to, to share as closing, you are welcome. Renee, I'd just like to say to the fellow panelists, you know, it takes a lot of courage to get on to a phone call like this and deal with, you know, everything that we've been through and try to, you know, pick out the best points that we can put across without bringing up the most horrible points. And, you know, it, for the therapy and everything else, I'll just agree with my panelists that, you know, it's hard to open a floodgate that you don't know whether you can control, right? And so it's, it's a very sensitive subject. It's a very personal subject and it's very difficult. And I just wanna to say to this panel, you know, I didn't live a, a very long life in foster care. I know that it affected my life um, to this day. Um, but I respect and admire each and every one of you and thank you. Indeed, indeed.